I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Stephanie Hosler, a partner at Brian Cave Layton Paisner in St. Louis and the global leader of the firm's corporate and finance departments. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Excited to be here. So today we're going to talk about several things on the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about your background, how you came to the law and to your firm, some of the deals you've worked on, your new role in firm management and your interest in law firm diversity. Related to that, the new NASDAQ rules on diversity on boards, and finally, a hobby you have taken up during the pandemic, chess. So to begin, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to the law, to your current practice, and to St. Louis. Yeah, sure, David. Thank you. So I'm originally from Gary, Indiana. I'm the child of two immigrants. So I was first generation from Gary, Indiana. My father is from Peru in South America. It was always important to my father that I help others, that I I get out in the community, that I do things for other people. And so that's really what drove me to practice law is just a sense of really helping people who can't help themselves and helping make people's lives better, really. And so I went to undergrad, studied economics in Chicago at Northwestern University. And then after undergrad, practiced for a bit as a management consultant and then went to law school at Northwestern University School of Law in Chicago as well. And then you spent a couple of years at Kirkland and Ellis as a young associate and moved to what was then Brian Cave in St. Louis. That's exactly right. So I came over as third year to BCLP, and I've always practiced in the M&A group. So I've been doing M&A my whole legal career and advising boards on various issues. And what drew you to the practice initially and what has continued to keep you engaged in the practice? So I always had an interest in law because of the desire to help other people. In between my undergrad practicing at a management consulting company, what we did was we really helped companies grow both organically and inorganically. And we helped companies identify targets to potentially acquire. So that was really my first taste of M&A. And it was more from a diligence perspective. So a company, if they were looking to acquire a healthcare company, but they didn't know what targets to go after, they would approach the consulting firm that I worked with, L.E.K. Alcar, and we would help them identify the targets. And I just loved it. I thought it was a way where you could work with all different types of people in all different types of industries and really create something and move something forward versus litigating an issue. I, I really felt like M&A was something where we were bringing everyone together to create something great. And was there a, a specific a transaction that was pivotal for you and your career in terms of orienting you toward the practice or as you became more senior transactions that you would you would look at as milestones in your career? 
Yeah, definitely. Now, that's a, a tough question because I really do love M&A law. I just love the feel of the deal. I like being the quarterback. I think it never gets old. I think there's always some different new type of issue that comes across your plate. But one of the deals that kind of sticks out in my mind is I worked on, as a senior associate, a reverse Morris trust transaction. And at the time, reverse Morris trust transactions really weren't that prevalent. There was only a couple that had already been done. I think small handful, like two or three that had ever been structured in that manner. And so the idea of that type of transaction is it's a way to create a really a tax efficient structure for the shareholders of both the, the buyer and the seller. So essentially what happens is the seller creates a subsidiary and transfers the assets that they're going to sell to that subsidiary, spins off that subsidiary to its stockholders, and then the subsidiary merges into the buyer. And you can do it if the ownership of the subsidiary is structured in the right way, you can do it in a tax-free manner, which is really a great way to create value. And working on that transaction, so it was a transaction involving Kraft and our client Ralcor, and it was in connection with the acquisition of the Post Cereals business. So this is like the Fruity Pebbles, if you ever had that cereal as a kid, um, or Honey Bunches Votes, a number of different branded cereals. And it was really an innovative structure at the time and really exciting and kind of sexy for the market. But but it also sounds like like part of what you enjoy about being an M&A lawyer is managing the various personalities, both on your own team and in the deal more broadly. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think you come across the full cast of characters when you do a deal because you're really dealing with all different types of specialists, both specialists at your law firm and your client, but also on the other side. You're dealing with everyone from benefits and tax and IP to data privacy to real estate. I mean, I think it's the one area of law where you're really touching on so many different areas that it can be really fun because it's always interesting because you never know where there's going to be some type of issue or where it might be a hot button that the other client has. So it it makes things fun. Yet, despite your love of practice, you this year have taken a role in management. You're now one of five people on your firm's management committee. What led you to do that? And how are you trying to balance those responsibilities with practicing? So I guess to answer your first question, I've never, David, like never have wanted to touch management. So I've been approached to be on the board or be other positions in management. And I've always been completely hands off. I truly love doing M&A. I love mentoring. I love working with the team of lawyers I work with at BCLP. So in the past, I've always said, absolutely not. Don't want anything to do with it. One question, which, which it just occurred to me, how do you distinguish between your role as an M&A lawyer, which involves a lot of management, you know, yeah. both in terms of your team and then over the longer haul, managing the associates and younger partners in your department. How do you distinguish between that and the kind of firm management role that you now have? Because clearly one, you really, really enjoy. And so why did you look at the other and think, and and this is not an uncommon sentiment, I think, look at the other and think that that was maybe not something you wanted to do. 
You know, it's funny that you say it that way because I never thought of it like that. To me, it was very different. I never thought of myself managing the various, whether it be associates or paralegals and different partners on my team. I always saw that as us all just working together. And so I never drew a comparison in that way. But now that I'm in the role, it's just an extension of that, really. It's just working with the members of our team, all of our associates across our entire firm, across the entire platform, no matter what office you're in. But it really is an extension of that. But for myself, I thought it would create more of a target on my back where I'd be open to more criticism then I just didn't necessarily want to go that way. And so I'm a lawyer of color. And as a lawyer of color, I didn't want to open myself up to that. Even as much professional success as you've had, and clearly to be in a position you're in at your firm to command that kind of respect, even then you still shied away a little from a management within the firm. Yeah, 100%. I love the partners I work with. I love the associates I work with. And for me, I just didn't think I had the bandwidth for it. But when I was asked this time, and I was just, it's a new role for me, right? So it's just been through COVID, something very new for me. And for the first time, I thought, you know, maybe I want to give this a shot. You know, maybe I want to do something. So I said, yes. So now I'm five months into it. (laughs) And so what led you to change your mind and decide this was a task you were willing to take up at this point? I was a part of the executive leadership program with the Hispanic National Bar Association last year. And essentially what this program does is it gets different Latina women together and we go through various leadership training and meet all different types of women who are all Latinas. And what we created was a really special bond where we are constantly talking to each other and communicating, even now. And I remember talking to them one day when we all just got on the phone and I had mentioned that I was asked to do this position. And they really opened my eyes and said, oh my gosh, like imagine the change you can create in that type of position. And that's really what spurred me to take it on. So you thought about the role differently and the possibilities differently as a result of your interaction with these women. hundred percent. You know, in the past, I've been frustrated by the lack of diversity at Big Law, at an AMLAW 100, AMLAW 50. I've been frustrated by the lack of racial, ethnic diversity. And for the first time, I thought I could create something really great and really make a difference. Did did you feel like you were able to address some of those issues as a partner with your own clients or even there you felt that you were limited in how you could create a more diverse environment within your firm and your group? As you know, a lot has happened over the summer with respect to diversity. For the first time, I think people have been awakened to how important it is to talk about the diversity and to talk about people's different experiences. And for the first time, I'm starting to hear clients talk about it. I mean, if you look recently, there was an open letter signed by 150 of some of the large cap companies all talking about how they want their legal teams to be comprised of diverse attorneys and how critical that is. 
And so for the first time, I was seeing movement and pressure, quite honestly, from our clients to create that change. And that definitely motivated me and spurred me on to take on the position. I'm curious because you're based in St. Louis. You've spent most of your career there. You know, obviously in in 2014, you had the the protests in Ferguson, which is essentially in St. Louis. What effect did that have on the legal community there and the corporate community there as compared to what you've seen in the last five or six months? So what was happening in St. Louis, I'll be honest, it wasn't a surprise that that happened. There were issues that I think most people of color would have told you about before everything occurred in Ferguson. So I do think that created some movement, but we really didn't see the same movement from the clients as we're seeing now. So it did awaken people in a sense, and people realized that in the city of St. Louis and all across the United States, there were were issues with respect to people of color in terms of how they were treated and how their voices were heard. But it wasn't until I would say this summer that we started to really see a movement from our clients saying, you know, it's just no longer acceptable. We're not going to put up with it anymore. We need to have a diverse team because it really makes a difference in the outcome that we see with respect to both our litigation, but also our deals and really across the entire legal platform. And what lessons do you take from your own career, from your time as an associate in a practice that's largely male, in terms of how to mentor people and make people who may not look like the stereotypical white male M&A partner feel comfortable and have the confidence to succeed in that environment? What did you learn as an associate about those issues? I think for myself, what I'm most grateful for is attorneys that mentored me did not look anything like me and did not have any type of childhood or background like I had. But at the same time, they still wanted to relate to me and they wanted to teach me. And what I learned about that is that it's so important to make sure you really notice your associates and no matter whatever background they have to make sure that they feel comfortable working with you and to make sure you're not treating them any differently than any of your other attorneys at your firm. The partners that really mentored me treated me like the white guys down the hall and that made a big difference in my career. You know, if they were going out to play golf, even though I did not play it or have any interest in playing it, they invited me, you know, and that makes a difference. Like I always felt included, even if I didn't want to do it or did not do it. And that's so the development of our associates is making sure that they feel included and part of the team. Because, you know, I never had a mentor that was Latina or Latino. My mentors were all white males. And so what did they tell you about how to manage challenges that they might not have had because you're a woman, because you're Latina, and about how to go about building client relationships in a way that they might not have done, but would be authentic for you and would work for you? 
So first, I think they help me navigate the legal profession. You know, I think it's sometimes someone could say something or a client can do something and it would rub me the wrong way. And I had a comfortable enough relationship with them that I could talk to them about what happened. And they would help me in terms of making my voice heard and how to deal with the issues that came in front of me. And I'm sure there were situations that they could not relate to, but at the same time, they really listened to me, gave me advice, and really had my best interest at heart. You know, there's times that I definitely didn't listen to them where I went a different route, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it was good, you know, and sometimes it wasn't so good. But no matter what the time to one, care about what was happening to me, and two, listen to me and give me advice on how to deal with it. I mean, I can think of times where a client would say something to me, and my mentor would look at me to see how I reacted, or the other side would say something to me, the attorney across the table, and they helped me realize when to make a big deal out of something and when not to. So NASDAQ is trying to address some of these issues at the board level with a new proposal to require NASDAQ listed companies to have more diverse boards. Can you talk about that proposal and how you think it may change the dynamic in boardrooms? Yeah, I'd love to. So as you mentioned, NASDAQ has proposed rules that there would be requiring NASDAQ listed companies to have one director who is a woman director or a female director and one director that is from an underrepresented group, whether it be someone that's ethnically diverse or LGBTQ or or diverse from a sexual orientation perspective. And this is really, from my perspective, exciting to see. Because if the rules are put in place and a NASDAQ-listed company doesn't have those two types of directors, then they're going to be required to disclose it, and they're also going to have the possibility of being delisted. And so to me, seeing that kind of possible change at that level, I think is really something that we haven't seen before. And I think it really is a real positive for our profession. Can you feel the difference in boardrooms between a board that's more diverse and a board that's less diverse? And and obviously, you have the historical perspective to have seen at least somewhat greater board diversity over the course of your career. Oh, yeah. And you definitely do see a different dynamic. And even if you look at the studies that NASDAQ relied upon when they came up with these rules, it's been proven that companies with more diverse boards perform better. Their stock price does better. The return to shareholder and the shareholder value is stronger than if you have boards that do not have that diversity. So there's no question that diversity for public companies creates real value for those companies and for the shareholders. And can you feel that in the boardroom, say, when you're presenting to a board that the more diverse board just has a different dynamic than a less diverse board? 100%. I think there's more discussion. And discussion is good because you want that from a board. You want people to be present and asking questions and really pushing things. And you see more discussion. You see more dialogue. And I think that's 
really important because I do think that having a director who's from a different background, whether they be a female director or a director from an underrepresented group, they're going to see things that maybe some of your non-diverse directors would not necessarily see because they've had different experiences than those other directors. And so you see that frequently. You see just a more active board, which is something you want. And switching track a little bit, obviously you mentioned in part because of the pandemic, you've you've taken on a new role in management, but you've also developed a new hobby. Tell us a little bit about that. So with the pandemic, I have been spending more time with my family at home. And and, uh, my husband is a rated member of the Chess Federation. I have two kids, an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old who are both rated members as well. And they play in different rated chess tournaments. And so we've been playing so many board games and they've been playing so much chess that I decided I'd take up chess. And I have to tell you, David, it's been so much fun. You you have to try it. It's been so much fun. And there's been a lot of buzz because of the recent Netflix series around the Queen's Gambit. And so it's really great to see because I think chess has become much more popular than we've seen in the past. You've been around the game for many, many years because of your husband's involvement, which it seems like he's successfully transmitted to your children. Had you ever thought about picking it up before? Or you thought, you know, that's that's their activity? and You know, I've always thought about it, but I just never really had the time to do it. And not that I have the time as much to do it, but I thought since we were all at home and we were all playing different games, like this was the time I just felt like if I'm going to do it, I got to try it now. So I thought this was the perfect time to give it a shot. And I have to say, there is no question about it that my level of patience has increased dramatically from my chess game. And, and have you have you learned things about how, how either your husband or your kids think that surprised you or that you just hadn't thought about? Oh, 100%. Because in order to be a good chess player, you have to really think ahead and think far further than just the first handful of moves. And I so did not appreciate that until I sat down and was playing my son and he decimated me. But um, it, it was so fun to see because a lot of times you take things for granted and you think, oh, it's just a board game. But it really, there's so much foresight that's involved thinking through things and really having the patience. I think all of us as lawyers We really need to try chess is all I can say because it does require such patience and you really have to think ahead, which I think is really good for all of us to do. Great. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, David. Really appreciate it. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. 